on the Mount. What is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount? Let's just talk about that to start. It is how you and I, as believers, are to live. It's that simple. How you and I, as believers, are to live. Before we go further, let's ask the Lord to help our time. Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather, to open your Bible, and to hear from you. And as we read through this timeless sermon today, Lord, even through the foolishness of man, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord? Would you show us who you are more as we read through these wonderful chapters today? Will you show us who we are, Lord? Would you encourage, convict us, whatever it is, have your will and have your way? Father, we do pray that you would um, thwart the plan of the enemy, Lord, to bring in distractions, to take the seeds that are planted in our hearts and to snatch them away. We pray, soften our hearts to your word, Lord. We want to come to this today with the respect that it deserves. And so, Father, help us prepare our hearts now as we get into this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the main point, how you and I as believers are to live. Of all the sermons ever preached in over the hundreds of years, thousands of years since Jesus Christ, walked the earth, none is more well-known, more searching, more convicting, or more timeless than this. This sermon was preached in the first part of the first century, yet it is still completely applicable today. In Halley's uh, Bible handbook, he says that every Christian should memorize this and apply it daily. Every Christian should memorize this and apply it daily. I remember Don Harrison used to walk around with it in his pocket. And, you know, anytime he had a free moment, he'd sit out and he'd read through the Sermon on the Mount. He was going to memorize this thing. And uh, I don't doubt that he did, you know. Yeah, every time I saw him, he had it. And, um, you know, that's no joke. That's the saints of old, you know, not that Don's a saint of old. <laughs> he's, he's older than me. Saints used to memorize large, I mean, in the early church, the Sermon on the Mount was serious business. The early church, this was what they, this was, they strived to be like this. They, they applied this to their lives. Uh, it was a big deal. This is how Jesus wants us to live. And that meant a ton, uh, you know. And it, today we have so many different people telling us what to do, you know. Like every time you turn on a commercial, you know, it's like, obey your thirst. Like, okay, well, so now you're telling me what to do. And, you know, philosophy's here and this way, and everybody's got a book, and Oprah says stuff and all this. In the early church, they were concerned about what Jesus says that we should be doing. And that's where you find it is in the Sermon on the Mount here. Um, I encourage you, you know, some of you young people, you have brains that are still like developing, you know what I mean? While your brain is still developing, mine's not developing. It's on the downstroke, you know what I mean? It happens. I think like 21, 22 years old is when your body starts, you know, you hit this peak and you start, um, you know, dying actually. You know, for a while your cells are, you know, you're growing and life is happening. While you're young, man, get this into your mind. Today in this world, what you young people are going to face more and more that you already are right now is, is a lot of people are telling you there's no such thing as moral objective truth. In other words, there's no such thing as right and wrong. That is, 
such a foolish statement in itself because if somebody says there's no such thing as right and wrong, all you have to do is say, is that right? <laughs> and then they go, oh, and then their head blows up everywhere uh, because they don't realize that's a self-refuting circular argument. There's no such thing as truth. Oh, really? Is that true? <laughs> really? You guys see the foolishness of that? But that's what they teach in college campuses. You have to be prepared. When you start going to college, you're going to run into professors. You're going to run into teachers that are going to boast in their atheism. And they're going to try to you know, get you to not believe in the concept into the reality of objective right and wrong truth. But what Jesus speaks here is objective right and wrong truth. Jesus says this is right and wrong. And so you are different than the world. The world is going this whole sway of gray area and there's no such thing. Right is wrong. Up is down. Um, you know, boys can be girls, even though genetics says they can't. And, you know, and stuff like this is so confusing. You have to turn to the Lord of the word, the God of the word, and then you get, you know, solid foundation of right and wrong from Jesus Christ. And this will never change. His word's never changing. I uh, remember that book of Eli movie where nobody can, like the Bible's scarce. Has anybody seen that? The book of Eli, Denzel, in there? Yeah. So it, like you find out, I mean, the, the synopsis of it is, is in the future, nobody can find like truth and right and wrong. And so the, all these people are looking for the Bible and, uh, you know, he has it memorized. And there's, it's prophetic almost in this, you know, it's coming to the day and age where solid, real truth, people are going to be like, how can you even find it? How can you even discover what's right or wrong anymore? You turn on one news station, it says this. You turn on another news station, it says the exact opposite. You read this doctor's report on apple cider vinegar. This one says it's good. This one says it's bad. You read that you should eat bacon. You read that you shouldn't eat bacon. Like there's no such, th who knows anymore? This is the timeless truth of God. It'll never change. And if you commit it to memory, no matter what happens, they'll never be able to take that from you. And that's kind of the book of Eli is like commit this to memory and Nobody can take it. I don't know. I'm excited about truth. That's what I needed when I came to Christ. When I came to Christ, I was a mess because I just, what's true? What is life all about? How are you supposed to live life? Are you supposed to go get a bunch of money? Are you supposed to, money, power, and respect? I used to listen to rap music. That's what they said. And um, what's life all about? Are you just, is it just about family? Is it about kids? Is it about career? Who knows what life's about? And so when I came to Jesus Christ and I discovered that there is a God there is a God that has spoken. There is a God that says this is right and wrong. It brings healing to your mind because it's, it's just like a source of peace that comes to you. There is a such thing as reality. There is a such thing as truth. And we find timeless truth in the Sermon on the Mount. A few misinterpretations of the Sermon on the Mount we'll start with. First of all, it's not a message for the unsaved world. It's not just some tips on how to live a good life. It's not a message of, uh, you know, go do this, of moralism. Unsaved people cannot do what's in the Sermon on the Mount consistently. It's not a message for the unsaved world. First of all, look at Matthew chapter 1, or chapter 5, verse 1. I'll, I'll show you from the text that this is not a message that was given to the unsaved world. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, well, let's stop. Before that, go to Matthew 4 and read from verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes... He went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So Jesus is speaking to people that have been following him. So it's not a message for the unsaved world. Turn to chapter 7. Wow. Like everybody almost has a Bible. (laughs) That's rare in 2021. People flipping through Bibles or on your phone or whatever it is. Praise, praise the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, it's the end of the sermon, that the people were astonished at his teaching. Notice what it says there, the people, right? So he's not talking just to the 12 disciples. Actually, at this point, you know, in Matthew, we've only seen that he called four, remember? James, John, Peter, and Andrew, right? But it says here that the multitude, all these people, great multitudes were following him. So you had people that were following him. They were interested in him for some reason. They're following him. And he gives this sermon to all of them. He's on a mountain. He doesn't care who hears. He's not like selectively going into a cave with just a few of them. He's saying it to everybody. But it's directed at these people that are following him. Now, within the group that's following him, some are the church, the true church, and some are just drawn for the miracles and whatever else. By the way, that's the same thing that happens in 2021 today. Every Sunday morning when people are gathering in buildings, it's not always the true church, even though they're in a church building. The true church are the ones that are born again, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, repented of their sins and following Jesus Christ. Now, in this group, some of them were the true church and then some of them were just onlookers. Some of them are just interested. But this message is primarily not just like a, you know, here's some good moral tips for the whole world, right? Another misinterpretation This is not a message explaining how to be saved, right? I don't know if you've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount taught that way, where it's like, essentially, you do these things to earn righteousness, right? Who knows what's wrong with that? Amen. What would that be? What would that be? It's a word that starts with L. Legalistic. I knew you were going to know that. Good job. I could tell by the look on your face. You were like, I know this. Well, you've been taught well. Your parents taught you and you've you've learned well. You cannot earn salvation, so this is certainly not a message of how to be saved. Everybody in Calvary Chapel, Mason City, knows how to be saved, I pray. Uh, That it's by grace through faith, not as a result of obeying the Sermon on the Mount, so nobody could boast, right? So it's not just moralism, like here's some good things we should try to do them. It's not a message only describing the millennial reign of Christ or the kingdom age. Some what they're called is dispensationalists. The Schofield Bible had this in it, which is a very popular study Bible from years ago. Some of you might have heard of it. Some interpreters say this is a description of how things will be in the kingdom age, and that's all it is. No, it's not all that it is. Here's why we say that. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing how Christians should live in a fallen world. Why would I need to turn my cheek or pray for those who persecute me if this was only in the kingdom age? Because in the kingdom age, will there be anybody persecuting Christians? No. 
Would there be a need to turn your cheek in the, Christ, in the kingdom age? Not at all. So why would Jesus be saying, giving directions for these things if it only applied to the kingdom age? So these are a few misinterpretations. They're popular. If you haven't heard them, if you start poking around, you'll find these out there. Um, so next, reasons to study the Sermon on the Mount. Like the Ten Commandments did with Israel, the Sermon on the Mount proves beyond doubt our need for righteousness and that we have come short of the glory of God. It shows us who we are and drives us forcefully to the cross of Christ for forgiveness and salvation. It brings us to Christ to receive salvation by grace through faith. In other words, just like the Ten Commandments did, if you want to convict somebody of their sin, if they're honest, say, okay, obey the Ten Commandments just for the rest of the day, okay? And if they're honest, by the end of that, they'll come away saying, there's no way I can do this. This is an impossible standard. Now, when somebody understands that God's standards are impossible for fallen man, that person is ready for salvation, right? Now, so the Sermon on the Mount does the same thing. You and I can't do these things perfectly. If you think you do, you're confused at best, right? Now, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, please. This is the, I think this is the, the key verse, really, of the whole thing. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So Jesus is saying that if your righteousness as Christians doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who by all appearances look like the most religious people you'd ever seen in your life, the most righteous people you'd ever seen. In fact, they used to tithe out of their herb garden, like every single thing that they, you know, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So a believer in Christ should go, oh, what are you talking about? This is impossible. You're right. You need a different kind of righteousness. And we'll talk about that at the end of our message. Galatians 3.24 says this, Therefore the law, Paul's talking about the Mosaic law, was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Paul says the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, was a tutor. It taught us that we needed Jesus because we're imperfect, and it brought us to Christ. Now, if that is true about the Ten Commandments, how much more true about the Sermon on the Mount? The Ten Commandments dealt with the externals. The Sermon on the Mount deals with your heart-level motivations. So how much more does the Sermon on the Mount drive me forcefully to the cross of Christ? It brings us in direct contact with the Lord Jesus. Here's another reason to study it. Now, I don't know about your Bible. Does it have red letters? Okay. Some people think that the red letters are more important um, than any of the other ones. Um, technically, if you believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable and good for training and correction and rebuke, then Jesus' red letters are no more inspired than all the black letters of Leviticus, Malachi, whatever else it is. They all have the same divine authority. They're all God-breathed. But there is an aspect of the red letters that's pretty interesting, right? Um, God spoke through personalities. He spoke through Isaiah's personality, through Jeremiah's, through um, Paul, right? He spoke through their personalities. And when you read Paul enough, you start to get to know Paul, right? Who knows Paul a little bit today? You know, you're like, I, I start to know this guy's sense of humor. He's super sarcastic at times. You laugh out loud when you're reading his letters uh, sometimes. 
so God used their personality as he inspired them, and then you're reading their personality, but the red letters are inspired by God, and they're through the personality of God. So that's pretty cool, right? You're reading what Jesus Christ said. <laughs> Brings us in direct contact with him. Why else study it? It points the way to happiness. As an early pastor, I used to say things like, God's more interested in your holiness than he is your happiness. <laughs> that may be true for somebody that's just living like a prodigal, and it, maybe you need to tell them that, like, oh, I'm all about drugs and partying and doing my own thing and my own comforts all the time. Well, you know what? God's not interested in that. God's interested in you being holy as he is holy. So I used to use that statement too often and didn't understand really that actually the Bible is teaching you how to be happy, right? And not happy as the world gives it temporally. The way the world sees happiness is they see it, uh, you know, as depending on happenings, happiness, happenings, happenstance. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't, right? But the Bible talks about happiness in a different way. The Bible talks about joy, the kind of joy that you can have as Christ's follower, regardless of whether, uh, whatever the circumstances are. Your life can be falling apart on the outside, but inside you can have a joy and peace that only come from Jesus Christ. Some of you say, I know, that's the only way we've gotten through our life, you know. It points the way to true happiness. It was pretty interesting because it teaches about 180 degrees difference than what the world says happiness is all about, Right? Once again, uh, last one, once we've been born again, and let me stress that, once we've been born again, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to please our Heavenly Father. Now, you all know, um, hopefully, that when God looks at you, He sees you in Christ, and He's pleased with Jesus, and so therefore He's pleased with you. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there is a way to live that is pleasing to God. Now, I know that you guys want to know what that is. I mean, Man, I remember, you know, many times in my life just saying, God, I just want to please you. I want to know what, how can I please you with my life? And I'd read the word and I just, I wanted to know so bad. Like, what do you do, God? How, do, how should I live? Because I didn't get taught how to live growing up, you know, uh, which was obvious by what I did with my life. But this teaches you how God wants you to live. And the blessing is like really all yours. Like it's difficult because you have this sinful flesh, right? Sinful flesh wants to be prideful and arrogant and it wants power and dominate and control people and eat whatever it wants and do whatever it wants all the time. And so that's kind of difficult aspect of it. But at the end of the day, by obeying these things, you find that there's a greater joy and a greater lasting peace that ever comes. Uh, that, you know, it never comes by following your flesh. So that's a good reason to study it, too, as it teaches us how to live. Let's go over the content. Uh, verses 3 through 12, this is on your handout, and it's also on the screen here, microscopically. <laughs> we have the Beatitudes. Um, comes from a Latin word, the blessings, but let's take it just as the English. Um, separate that into two words, and what do you get? The, the Beatitudes. <laughs> These are the attitudes you need to have as a Christian. This is how you need to be. Okay, verses 3 through 12. 3 through 16, salt and light. Jesus talks about the purifying, preserving, cleansing light uh, that Christians are to be in this dark world. He says, if salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing to be thrown out under people's feet. You remember these statements of Christ. Verse 17 through 20 explains that Jesus didn't come to do away with the Old Testament law. In fact, he came to fulfill it perfectly. And by grace through faith, his perfect obedience to that law can be applied to your life. 
through faith. He teaches on sinful anger, number four. Then he teaches on adultery, teaches on marriage, teaches on the importance of being good about your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else other than that, you don't have to say, I swear to God, man, you have to believe me. If you're the kind of person that says, I have to swear to God to get somebody to believe you, you don't have a good word. And Jesus says, I wouldn't have you live like that. That's sinful. You don't need to say that stuff. Just be about your word. He goes on, and uh, the important, I'm sorry, uh, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. Somebody asked you to carry their load one mile, go another one with them. <sighs> Love your enemies. You will be like God in doing so. You'll be like your heavenly father. Into chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, do your deeds to please God. Don't do your charity. Go sound a trumpet before yourself. Here I come. Look how much money I gave to the charity. Look at me. Don't do that. Jesus talks about the hypocrisy of that. Then he gets into the model prayer, our Father who art in heaven and so on. Um, Fasting, only to be seen by God. Don't go around and, I'm so fasting, bro. Look how... Uh. I used to know a guy that did stuff like that. He wasn't a Christian, but he was so fasting. He'd be going around, everybody in the office would know. Like, I'm cleansing, bro, cleansing. Yeah. Well, you got your reward there. People pat you on the back for your good deeds, and then Jesus says, there you get your reward. Where would you rather have a reward at, in heaven or here? Because if, you if you're satisfied with having a reward here, go ahead, and sound, go ahead and let everybody know about all the good that you do all the time. Get pat on the back for it. You don't get any reward in heaven. That's it. Now, don't worry. Verses 25 through 34 of chapter 6. I'm sorry, I skipped one. Uh, lay up your treasures in heaven. You know, you're working for all this money. It's all going to burn. Um, but you can be rich in heaven by doing things uh, to please Jesus. He goes on to say, don't worry. Be happy. No, it's not Bobby McFerrin. Come on. That's totally stuck in your head now. <laughs> goes on, keep on seeking, asking, and knocking. Or do not judge. I skipped that one too. I'm not very good at this. I'm sorry. Talks about the narrow way. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few will find it, but wide is the path of destruction, and many are on it. Um, verse, the next one, uh, you'll know them by their fruit. Hey, I can't see what's going on in somebody's heart, but I can sure look at the fruit of their life. I can sure look at what they're doing, like the, what their actions, how they talk to people, how they don't talk to people, uh, what, state of, what state their marriage is in, um, how they take care of their possessions, how, whatever else it is. You can judge them by their fruit. Um, man, one of the scariest sections in the Bible. For some, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of, workers of iniquity. I never even knew you. People will come to him in the judgment, you know, at that day, and they'll say, hey, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I did all this stuff. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. And that's a scary section uh, right there. For some, not for, you know, not for everybody. And then concludes with, build your life on the rock. Uh, a foolish guy builds on sand, builds on worldly wisdom. But a wise person, a wise woman, a wise man builds on the truth of Jesus Christ. All that is introduction. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. They opened, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yolt or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, useless, he's useless, he's worth nothing, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out uh, of there until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your clothing, your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it said, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. Mammon was the God of money. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body that you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Who can, who can make themselves grow 18 inches by worrying? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you may not be judged. For with what judgment you judge you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Why do you see the sawdust in your brother's eye, but you don't see the two by four sticking out of your own, right? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and churn and tear you in pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets." Enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we, uh, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes.